Should high-profile so-called radical climate activists, think of Extinction Rebellion for instance, pivot their campaigning strategies from agitation to broadening public support? In focusing on social movements and nonprofits that use advocacy and campaigning methods, when is it best to use more quote-unquote radical activist approaches, such as civic disobedience, mask public mobilization, a willingness to put yourselves in jail, etc., which tends to attract passionate participants, but that may, on the other hand, also draw only a relatively narrow slice of the population. And when can such movements, as well as nonprofits, best aim to gain a broad public support, even if this may require them to change or moderate their demands, their messaging, and their methods? That's the topic of this episode. All of it applied to climate change, the crisis of our time, one might argue. What are the merits of outsider strategies versus insider strategies? And how can these two sets of strategies best be combined in a complementary manner? This is what I discussed today with Asim Prakash, blogger and academic, who together with Nives Dolsak frequently writes for magazines such as Forbes, The Washington Post, etc., on environmental activism as well as policy. Hello, and welcome to NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijwijken, and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society manage change, invest in cutting-edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen effectiveness. I'm also a thought leader on these issues, including as co-author of the book Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, which is read by civil society leaders across the globe. If you are such a leader and want to look change right in the eye, this podcast is for you. Hello, everybody. This is NGO Soul and Strategy, and this is Tosca. And today I am very happy to ask somebody who I greatly respect questions that have to do with when nonprofits and social movements use advocacy and campaigning methods. My question often is when is it best to use more? radical, and I'm using air quotes here, activist approaches such as uh, civic uh, disobedience actions, mass public mobilization that um, can draw a lot of passionate participants, but at the same time can also draw a relatively narrow slice of the population. Versus when is it best to focus on gaining a broad public support as a social movement or NGO, even if that requires the social movement to change or moderate its demands, change its messages, messages and its methods. That is the topic of this episode. 
and we're going to apply it to the topic of climate change activism. So a little introduction. As you all know, we've seen a wave of youth-led climate change activist networks that have chosen sometimes to engage in more radical forms, civic agitation, activism, and nonviolence, civil disobedience. Examples, of course, are Extinction Rebellion, the Sunrise Movement here in the U.S., and also the Pan-African Climate Change Alliance, and many others. Some, such as Extinction Rebellion, are comfortable with very high-profile, large-scale disruption of daily life. Uh, some of its members are comfortable with causing property damage. And the movement tends to use mass arrest and imprisonment sometimes as tactics. Now, some critics would consider that environmental fanatics, and I'm again air-quoting this, who risk alienating potential supporters. In this interview, I am interviewing Asim Prakash, academic and public thought leader on climate change activism as uh, undertaken by nonprofits, but also social movement, and his partner, Nives Dolchak. Today, I'm interviewing Asim. And in a complimentary episode, I'm going to also interview a young Extinction Rebellion activist about the same question about strategies, tactics, and trade-offs. But now let's turn to Asim. Welcome, Asim. It's good to have you back on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's such an interesting topic. I'm looking forward to this. So a little bio on Asim. Asim is the Walker family professor and the founding director of the Center for Environmental Politics, very significant here, at the University of Washington in Washington State in the U.S. He has several research interests besides environmental policy and activism. One of them is NGOs, their governance, and their accountability. And Asim, before joining the University of Washington, was an assistant professor in strategic management and public policy at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., also here in the U.S. He also worked in the private sector at Procter & Gamble Corporation in India. And Nivas Dolchak, his partner and research partner, is professor in sustainability science and director of the School of Marine and Environmental Affairs at the University of Washington in Seattle as well. And she also was a visiting professor at, the university, um, at a university in Slovenia. Okay, Asim. So first, can you um, position first this this your interest and Nivas's interest in climate change activism as well as policy around climate change? How is that embedded in your overall research agenda? So both Nivas and I are very interested in climate issues, and separately, we are also very interested in civil society. We are students of Elena Rostrom, who's done some pioneering work on civil society, local community-led initiatives towards governance. So climate activism, climate social movements are, an, are a natural confluence of the two research interests we have. I see. So um, this is a bit of an abrupt pivot, but it's something that in my own work, sometimes I, I have been interested in. As you know, um, environment uh, activism in general not just climate change activism, has de facto had, was historically dominated by white upper middle class liberals and thus suffered from what some would call an aura of white elitism. 
that the environment in our wards is mainly something that citizens care about when most of their other material needs are met. Is my impression, and is that criticism indeed justified? And to what extent, Asim, is that changing now? So I think it's it's a complex question. You are right that historically, at least the conservation movement has been led by the white upper class. So it's the conservation of the elite because they want to protect pristine forests for future generations. But you start thinking about future generations if your tummies are full. And oftentimes, conservation meant evicting indigenous and native people from their lands. Yeah. So there was little attention to paid on who's picking up the cost, the tab of you know conserving natural resources. But in recent years, I think conservation movement has become a bit more widespread, though again, you know, in, in developing countries, indigenous people, women who are directly affected when the forests are logged, when water scarcity becomes very severe, when they have to walk longer and longer to collect firewood to cook food. So they have become kind of active in protecting local resources because it's this is what we call the environmentalism of the poor. I see. Because these people, there's a there's an excellent book that I would recommend to everybody. It's 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 a book on uh, the, the author is Martinez Allier. It's called Environment the Environmentalism of the Poor, hmm. published in two thousand three. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. So, in some instances, people are directly affected by environmental destruction. Yeah. And when it comes to conservation, so poor people rise up. The same thing we can see in the US, the whole environmental justice movement is essentially a movement of the disadvantaged communities when you know toxic sites, dumping sites are located in the neighborhood and they're suffering disproportionate impact of pollution. So there are different strands of the climate movement. There is certainly a perception that the climate movement is urban, metropolitan, white, and they are really they're less concerned about certain aspects of who picks up the cost of climate policy. But there are different strands of climate movement as well that are talking about you know justice issues. Interesting. And, yeah. Let me jump ahead to a question that I was going to ask you about. That is there anything? Is it challenging in some ways for social movements or formally registered nonprofits or NGOs to hold up? environmental conservation and protection and as well as mitigation when it comes to climate change, obviously, and environmental justice and equity at the same time? Or is the, are these things easily integratable, if you will, de facto on a day-to-day -day basis by movements? So this is a question that is being debated. So one thing's for sure that if you want to protect the environment, it should be for everybody. Mm -hmm. It should not be protecting environment for some and not for others. So in that case, if we really want to serve humanity, justice is an intrinsic part of protecting the nature. Justice is, is inherent in reducing pollution. I think the, the challenge arises on instruments and how we do it and what do we prioritize. Okay. So for example, we want to reduce emissions, but we enact a carbon tax. And we know that poor people spend a larger proportion of their income on energy. So unless until poor people are compensated in some way, they find that environmental books are being kind of balanced on their back. That's why in the state of Washington, on two occasions, 2016 and 2018, we voted down 
a carbon tax referendum interesting so it's i don't think the 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 quarrel is about the goals the quarrel is about the instruments and what kind of policy instruments or think about rooftop solar the whole the huge debate on net metering that happened in california yeah people who don't own houses say that you know why are why are house owners being subsidized to have rooftop solar we can't even afford it the same debate is happening on electric vehicles that not every, only the rich can afford electric vehicles so if you start giving subsidies is it really coming to the poor mm. so it's again it's not a question about environmental goals it's a question of policy instruments got it that's a clear answer yes and in a recent topic um i'm 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 in a recent blog post that um you wrote uh news and you wrote about the topic of renewable energy and about the need for climate activists to listen more to rural communities not just here in the US but elsewhere as well and rural citizens and their felt need to resist uh renewable energy projects you mentioned that these uh, this happens this resistance happens in the UK Germany Spain South Korea as well as the US what are the issues there exactly so 24% of US counties 24 that means all, almost 1 in 4 have enacted ordinances restricting renewable energy facilities wow yeah that's that's pretty big in fact some would argue that the real challenge in climate politics is not you know passing new laws it is creating renewable energy facilities and putting transmission lines to move that electricity from production centers to consumption centers the the there are two three issues involved the first issue is that people in rural areas believe that the rural aesthetics the sense of ruralness that they cherish is getting destroyed so yes. for example in germany these are called asparagus the wind turbines are called asparagus i don't know the german term because you know they kind of jutting out right and the second issue is that electricity is being generated in rural areas but for consumption in urban areas so once again rural areas mm-hmm. are kind of subsidizing urban areas got it and anybody who kind of you know opposes a climate project sometimes some climate groups not all are very quick to dub them as climate skeptics or climate deniers Denier. not understanding that it's people are not questioning climate science people are questioning who bears the cost of energy transition very and interesting so it's a, it's a distributional issue it's not a scientific issue so it's partial it's distributional it's partially about rural urban and it's also about class and and myself living in a rural part of the US um and coming myself from a rural background and knowing um how that your first point that you mentioned about identity it's incredibly important that place based identity and pride and not to want that um people not wanting to have that tempered with i i um i resonate with that i'm glad i asked well, you that well dutch farmers have been protesting against a lot of european union rules yes, on fertilizers yeah. They because have. again you know it's a sense of that we have been doing this who are these people in brussels to tell us how to grow food exactly and it's in islad in the netherlands my home country to uh, to a significant political upheaval as you yeah. know as you know probably better than i do so talking still about some of these trade offs right so greta thunberg the well known scandinavian climate change activist posed i think a reality check when she decided recently to side with indigenous people groups who push back against wind farms for instance and so ignoring the pushback from historically marginalized communities towards 
what are in other areas accepted forms of renewable energy, that raises for me the question about the importance attached to equity and justice in decarbonation. Can you comment a little bit, give us a little bit more context for that? Yeah. So climate justice, if you step back or think broadly, it's talked in three different ways. The first is poor and the marginal are going to suffer disproportionately from extreme weather events. That's a very typical notion of climate justice. Yeah. But there are two other notions. One is whenever we enact a climate policy, there are certain costs. Who picks up these costs? Yeah. So in Greta's instance, it is really the Samis who believe that they are picking up the costs because the wind turbines are in their cultural lands, in their ancestral lands. The same debates are happening in other places as well. And the third notion is who gets the climate benefits? If you subsidize electric vehicles, if you subsidize solar panels, who actually is picking up or who's actually coordinating the benefits? Mm. So the asymmetrical, the uneven distribution of benefits and costs are mm. equally important dimensions in climate change. Mm. So in case of Greta and the windmills or the wind farms, it is really that the cost of renewable energy transition is being offloaded on historically vulnerable communities. Mm. And that's why climate change, at least uh, in, in some instances, has an element of inequity that we need to be cognizant of. Yeah. Yes, yes. And I'm, again, linking that also to um, broad political, um, what shall I call it, uh, directions or trends, because in some of at least the um, global north countries that I'm familiar with, there is a direct correlation between populism, right, and the support for it, not only in rural areas, but certainly amongst others in rural area, coming out of a sense of being forgotten, being ignored, and uh, getting more and more behind. Is that fair? Yeah. So whether it's France, the Yellow West protests, whether in other places, they think it's this big government, the technical elite, the scientific elite, that's yes. kind of imposing its preferences on all of us. Yes. And they don't want to hear from all of us. And if we oppose, they're said we are uneducated, we are you know, climate deniers, or we are what is called the basket of deplorables, you know, the term Hillary Clinton used right. to describe some portion of the white working class in 2016. Right. So science... Climate change is embedded in a cultural war. And populism means, you know, you're questioning the establishment, you're distrustful of the establishment. And unless until we have climate change for the people, as opposed to climate change as mandated by IPCC or Brussels, we are going to have a pushback. I see. And so do you see... Um, um... Social movements such as Extinction Rebellion or the Sunrise Movement or um, environmental NGOs, you know, your big brand names, right? We all know them. Do you see them get caught up in this climate change, populism, class, rural, urban? Do they sometimes trip over themselves or do they generally navigate that fairly competently? So all these movements you have mentioned these are urban elite movements led by educated people. Is that generally that we know that from the data? Yeah, I think so. Because if you look at the demand. So, for example, let me give you a very concrete example. 
in last year, 2022, there were 38 instances of what we call museum vandalism. You know, people throwing tomato soup on Mona Lisa or this and that. How many did you say? 38. We actually have a, much more than I was aware. And yeah. just maybe um Asim, for those who don't who haven't picked up on those news can you give can you give an example or two of what you call museum vandalism? Museum vandalism refers to those instances where activists go to a museum and try to deface superficially an important piece of art. Of course, you know, all these pieces of art have a glass covering. So mm. the piece of art itself is not damaged. But, you know, they'll throw tomato soup or they'll do something or glue themselves to all these paintings. Yes. And when they're doing it, they're live streaming it. So the idea is to get the maximum impact in, in terms of a shocking incident. So this and is it's, a symbol, it's a symbolic act and a media-oriented act, right? Both social media and mainstream media. Right. It's social media and mainstream media. Mm-hmm. And, you know, museums are very sacred places. You go mm-hmm. there, you're quiet, you're respectful. You're watching something that has survived for centuries. And, you know, museums are owned by humanity, not by a particular country. So when people come and vandalize it, there's obviously a very shocking incidence. It's it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's a sacrilege, it's cultural sacrilege. And yeah. yet these climate activists, that's exactly what they want. They believe that we are destroying the earth. Earth is like a museum. Earth has these precious species that we are destroying by our reckless emissions of carbon dioxide. So there's a narrative, there's a counter narrative. So 38 of these incidents report, were reported last year. Mm-hmm. And almost all, except for a couple, were held, were in Europe. And 60% of these were only in three countries, Germany, Italy, and the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. So a lot of you know, these radical tactics are very, very European or very, very white, very, very white. Global related north. to global north. Because you know, in developing countries, there are barely any museums. And for their cultural pursuits, people don't go to museums. They'll go to community events. They'll have, you know, religious festivals and so on and so forth. So the way people pursue their cultural needs differs mm-hmm. across societies. Mm. Global South is not a museum-centered society. So clearly, you know, this museum tactic is completely irrelevant for the Global South. Irrelevant. Yes. So, yes. so it's, 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 it's interesting to see that some of the actions, some of the tactics, et cetera, et cetera, that uh, some of these groups are undertaking, they are very, very north focused. Mm-hmm. And it's there's nothing wrong in it. You know, people, groups have their own competencies, but we have to realize that they don't speak for the world. They speak yeah. for very specific constituencies that they represent. Right. And why don't you tell us a little bit more about the pretty strong debates that those museum vandalism acts that they caused, right? People for and people again. Can you posit that a little bit for our sure. audience? Sure. Uh, so the debate is not only museum vandalism, but other what we call disruptive events. Disruptive. Think of think of Extinction Rebellion in the United Kingdom, somebody you will interview in your next show. So they'll stop traffic or, you know, they'll, they'll block highways, causing disruption, causing inconvenience. But that's precisely what they want that people should kind of, you know, get out of their lethargy and stupor and say, oh my God, this is something very serious. Yeah. So all these incidents are happening and there is a debate whether it's good or bad in promoting environmental cause. The people who are for it say that every movement should have good cops and bad cops. So this uh-huh. is what we call the radical flank effect. That if you have a radical section of a, of a social movement, 
then the mainstream movement seems more reasonable. And the authorities and the people who hold the levers of power are more likely to agree to the demands put by mainstream movements because the radical- In other words, still the, the mainstream authorities and decision makers will be more willing to negotiate with the quote, more moderate flank because they said, at least if we do that, their demands are more moderate. If we negotiate with them, we don't have to deal with these radical folks. Correct. So in some ways, it's a good cop, bad cop. The radical flank is the bad cop. And so the good cop becomes more reasonable. Mm. The counter is that by these disruptive events, the radical flank is antagonizing people. Because if you step back and say, what is the purpose of these radical actions? And the answer is the radical actions are meant to increase public awareness. Right. But then the response is public already knows about climate change. It's, you know, media and other things are saturated with climate news. So is the is the obstruction in climate progress lack of awareness or is the politics more complex? Mm, I'm just hesitating for a moment when you say people already know about climate change. I know that is largely the case. But as you know, I live in a country, you live in a country where climate change um, denial or at least skepticism is still fairly broad. So not just the, the justice side, but just the, the very fact. So Actually, that's not true. No? Climate, climate denier, denialism in America has fallen dramatically. Is it? Tell me you look, more. You look at Pew polls, you know, vast majority of people want governmental action on climate change. It's not that people don't want it. The The debate, the, the, the concern is about the policy instruments. So if you look at the US Senate, there are mm. very few climate deniers left. Everybody agrees climate change is happening. The issue is how should we go about so, for example, Republicans would prefer carbon capture. They would not, right. they, they don't want, you know, punitive taxation on fossil fuel industry, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And even the climate deniers know about climate change. And I don't think if you throw tomato soup at Mona Lisa, the climate deniers say, oh my God, why am I denying climate change? This is something very serious. <laughs> no. So this is what you call, you know, people, people look for things that, that validate their prior beliefs. So I don't think yeah. climate change is a low salience issue. It's a pretty high salience issue. People have already made up their mind. Okay. I'm glad you 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 set me right on that one. So you say it's really more, again, about the instruments. It's, it's instruments. And there is there are, there are some studies, not lots, that suggest that people overall disapprove of museum vandalism. People disapprove when their everyday lives are disrupted when somebody blocks the highway, somebody disrupts the train. And sometimes, at least in England, the issues have become a bit physical, where local people who are, you know, moms or dads who are rushing to home to pick up their kids and suddenly their trains or subways are blocked, they are not happy. So they have tried to physically lift the protesters mm. out off the tracks, mm. sometimes off the roads, because their daily lives are getting disrupted. They don't have the luxury for disruption. And before we started recording, uh, Asim, you told me that uh, Nevis and you ha are publishing an article shortly that will be open access. So we will have it uh, linked in the show notes uh, about museum vandalism around climate change. Can you tell me briefly what is the main argument in, in the, the article? Sure, sure. So we the title of the article is Climate Action by Vandalizing Museums, When, Where, Who? So we are creating a data set that can answer three questions. When did this happen? In which countries did it happen? And who did this? Mm -hmm. When this has happened, this is essentially a tactic 
that sprang up between May and December of 2022. Hmm. In 2023, there have been only three instances, whereas in 2022, there were 38 instances. So it was a peak, but it may not. Peaking around COP meeting in Egypt. Right. So it was very strategically timed, where essentially it's taking place in Europe and even within Europe in three countries, England, Germany, and Italy. That's where all these things are timing. And who is doing it? There are, of course, a range of organizations, but there are three organizations that are responsible uh, uh, for these. Just Stop Oil UK, Ultima Generation Italy, and let's say Generation Germany. And all three organizations are part of something called A22 Network. So it's not very clear whether they're formally coordinating their actions, but it seems there is some kind of an informal, at least consultation going on. Mm. What is the model of the story? This is a tactic which is very time-specific, which is very region-specific, and which is very actor-specific. Mainstream organizations like Greenpeace, who routinely undertake disruptive action, are not participating in museum vandalism. But they are um, uh, participating in, for instance, um, blocking highways, like in my home country, the Netherlands. At least they are collaborating with Extinction Rebellion, right? Right. So Greenpeace, I think it it really varies, but you're right. Sometimes they are participating in, say, highway or or picketing oil terminals. But when it comes to museum vandalism, they have not participated in it. Right. So it's, it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a very interesting that they have the competency. You know, they have been doing, you know, climbing on top of the buildings, unfurling yeah. barrels, boarding ships that yeah. are, you know, uh, going to nuclear sites, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's so this is what the paper is trying to do. It's it's going to create a data set. It will put it in public access. People can see it. Right. And you know, let there be debate and let there be research. And that, yeah, and that's exactly why I wanted to interview you uh, today. Can we can we say, Asim, that these different um, choices of instruments for activism, let's say, are they? Can we broadly map them onto to uh, the kind of insider and outsider strategies in activism, or is it a little different? You know, I think I think that's that's a good way to think about it. So it's not going through the the insider, the regular policy process of lobbying, of petitioning, of writing comments, participating in town hall meetings. Here, the tactics are more radical. So you know, when we people say radical groups, radical can mean two things. One, yeah. radical is in terms of aims, abolish capitalism. That's radical. Mm. So none of these groups are saying abolish capitalism. Mm. So their goals are not radical, but their tactics are radical or outside tactics because they are disruptive. They're trying to disrupt. They're nonviolent, but they're disruptive. Right, right. Yes, yes. Um, now, since we talked about inside and outside of strategy, and, and um, I, I have to be cognizant of the time, as you know, social movements such as Extinction Rebellion and Sunrise and others in the realm of social, in uh, climate change, Co- collaborating with formerly registered NGOs and nonprofits is not always either occurring that much or that effective. How two very different types of civil society entities, if you will, agents, how, how can they best collaborate and complement each other? Where have you seen good examples and what kind of um, approaches were used to express that complementarity and to not 
uh, especially for the NGOs to not flatten the what is the strength of the movement and at the same time for the social movement to um, allow the NGOs to complement it and to amplify them. How, how have you seen these dynamics? So I belong to the school of thought that says, let a thousand flowers bloom. Because if people want to express their political preferences in a non-violent way, in a civil way, people should be free to do so. Mm-hmm. Whether they do it, they do it individually, an individual person standing outside an oil terminal and saying, stop fossil fuels, or individual part of a local community spontaneously organized, or an individual part of, say, Greenpeace. So these are individual choices. And in a, in a well-functioning democracy, people should have the right to express the choices yeah. in a legal, non-violent way. Mm-hmm. So prima facie, I don't see any tension. I actually see, as I said, the radical flank effect working in advantage. That when you have these spontaneous local protests against specific policies, Dakota Access Pipeline, that saw a massive my mobilization, it was both formally registered organizations and spontaneously evolving organizations. People converged there, they felt very strongly about the issue, and they wanted to the, their voices to be heard. Even mm-hmm. if you know the project went through, still, you know, people took a stand and said, This is wrong. If you want an oil pipeline, why did you route it through a water body that can threaten the water supply of a of a native nation? So I I like the fact that we have heterogeneity. I like the fact that there is no one size fit all. Yeah. And I like the fact that there is democracy and you know people can express their political preferences in the ways they, sure. they fit. Sure. I I I am totally with you on that of course. My question what I'm curious about is um NGOs in particular which is more my my field of knowledge have not always either mm, what should I say sought to proactively collaborate social movements in a way where each uh, of the respective strengths of both actors, if you will, was was respected as well as well utilized so that they truly, as I said, were complementary. Sometimes when I see them collaborate at all, and I think it's underutilized, um, um, is I see that the social movement becomes fairly quickly um worried about that its identity and the vigor of its civic activism gets flattened by the NGO. And there are also, there are in academia critiques on that as well, as you know. So I'm I'm curious about your comments on it in this space of environmental sector. So it's a broader debate. So there is a big concern that our political parties in decline because you have all these spontaneous groups that are popping up, making political demands. And what are the pros and cons of maintaining a rigid political party system? And, you know, people can argue both sides, et cetera, et cetera. I would say the same debate is happening in, in our sector as well. That should we work with established NGO sectors, uh, NGO organizations, or should we have space for spontaneously issue-specific, area-specific mobilization? They pop up, then they disappear, et cetera, et cetera. So do right. they undermine the traditional mainstream NGOs? And as I said, I am of the school of thought of let 100 flowers bloom. Let's have as many as possible as, as citizens want to. 
if citizens want to and you know the onus is on the mainstream ngos to demonstrate their effectiveness and usefulness to citizens i don't Absolutely. like i don't like policy monopolies that you know if you want to agitate you have to come to us i don't like that idea i don't like that model so yeah. it's probably i think it's a, it's a wake up call for mainstream organizations oh absolutely absolutely we, there is at least a section of population that wants specific kinds of advocacy yeah and they are not providing it so you know there is a there's a there's a demand but there's no supply so obviously a spontaneous group is emerging to supply those kinds of environmental advocacy products got it yeah um you mentioned the um the peaking of museum vandalism right in the, in the three european countries over within one uh, time uh, one year um do you want to comment on the sustainability of quote unquote radical uh, activism in terms of tactics i should say now uh, again you you specified that before um, the sustainability of such civic activism. Do we know of examples where that was actually sustained over multiple years versus these peak moments? So Extinction Rebellion has actually discontinued radical action. They are no longer picketing, they're no longer blocking highways. Is it a pause or is it a stop? I don't know. At the moment, it's it's a pause, but it's a pretty long pause. Mm. and for organizations that are constantly feeding on publicity it is a long pause however other groups are still continuing but right. as i said in 2023 there have been only three instances two yeah. in the us one in italy actually one in us one in sweden one in italy tiva fountain money and degas will this continue will it stage a comeback I don't know, but my guess is that a lot of the groups are thinking of new and radical ways to garner public attention. If this tactic has become stale or it's not working, they're probably learning from it. Hmm. And that's what we are seeing in 2023. But yeah. it's possible in some of the contexts it may stage a comeback. You know, we, we don't know. Right. I think the, the model of the stories, it's a very dynamic field. Very. And there are lots of organizations that are trying to find a foothold. That are trying to get media attention, that are trying to become, you know, these the the leading, the vanguard of the climate movement, right? And they will undertake policies to garner public attention, the way Greenpeace has done in the past, undertaken policies to garner public attention. Yes, yes, and it, it's good to know that you and and Nives are going to continue to track this field and are going to blog, continue to blog, not just write academic articles, but also blog about it, which I think is so useful. The the kind of role that you and Nives play in terms of not just staying in academia, but actually uh, writing uh, uh, shorter articles for a much broader audience. It's it's very welcome. I feel. So with that, with having said that, so where should people go if they want to find out more about you and Nevis's both academic research that is that is open access and your blogging activity? I think the best place is to Google us, Asim Prakash, University of Washington, and you'll come to my website. And all my material and all Nevis's web material are on the website. Okay. Whether it's articles, whether it's the commentaries, everything is on the website. Everything is on the website. Okay. And you you publish in Forbes, I see. From we, are a, we are a contributor, contractual contributor in Forbes. Yes, which gets you to a much uh, bigger, bigger audience. So I really encourage our listeners to um, 
to do exactly what Asim just said and Google both him and, and Nives and you will find some pretty interesting uh, and very timely commentary on what happens in the more broadly the environmental, not just climate change, but uh, environmental policy sphere, but also the activism sphere and the role of citizens in that. So with that, Asim, thank you so much for coming back on the show to talk about your insights in this really important uh, uh, field. And thank you, listeners. If you found this podcast episode stimulating, then be sure to check out the fact that I have a couple more episodes on campaigning strategies and tactics, instruments, as Asim just said, not just goals, such as episode number 18 with Paul O'Brien, formerly senior leader at Oxfam America and um, the uh, currently the CEO of Amnesty US. And to hear more about Asim's point of view, I have interviewed him before on the podcast, as I referenced, about ethics and integrity uh, issues in the nonprofit sphere and why the assumption that no nonprofits are virtual, virtuous sorry, has its troubling uh, side effects. And that is episode 37. And we will link to those episodes in the show notes. And you can find those, dear listeners, not just on my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, with the number five, but also on my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my email list, and you'll always be the first to be in the know. And with that, this is Tosca, and I look forward to spending time with you on NGO Soul & Strategy next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you valued the content, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so that other leaders of social change organizations can find it too. And if you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find blog posts, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about my co-authored book, Between Power and Irrelevance the future of transnational NGOs. If you sign up for my email list, you will receive a free sneak peek at the book. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org or contact me through my website. And follow me on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Till we talk again at NGO Soul & Strategy the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye.